You guys can turn to Acts chapter 6. We'll be looking at Acts 6 and Acts 7 today. And just a reminder, it's the first Sunday of the month. So at the end of our service today, we'll celebrate communion together. And I want you to be ready for that so you can be preparing your heart for that time. My kids love superheroes. They're about to turn six, so they're in that stage where they love to play superheroes and dress up like superheroes. So here was Halloween last year. Luke wanted to be Spider-Man and Gracie wanted to be Batgirl. On that particular day, it changes literally every day, maybe multiple times a day. I asked him yesterday, is this what you still want to be or something different? And Gracie said, well, now it's Superman because he gets a dog named Crypto and she really wants a dog. And Luke wanted to be Elastic Man. It's really clever. He knows that when he gets in trouble, I'll take a toy of his and put it on the top shelf. And so he knows if he could just reach it, then you could never get in trouble. Very creative man. So uh, my kids, hey, They love superheroes. They love to play superheroes. Unfortunately, it falls to me as their dad to deliver the bad news that they're never going to be superheroes. They're they're never going to be. It doesn't matter how much they play superhero and dress up and and pretend. They're never going to be superheroes because superheroes aren't like us. They aren't regular people. They don't live ordinary lives like the rest of us of us. And I don't know if you know, but there's been this interesting movement in the last couple of years to rewrite a lot of the comic book universe. So now Thor is a woman and Captain America is an African-American man. And I applaud that. They're trying to broaden the scope and the inclusiveness of superheroes. The problem is they're still not like us. It's not a normal woman, a normal guy. They're not living a normal life. How do you be a hero in a comic book? Well, you have to be chosen by a magical hammer or injected with super soldier serum or be bitten by a radioactive spider or inherit a hundred billion dollars from your parents when they get killed by the Joker. Something crazy has to happen for you to be a superhero in the comics. They don't live ordinary lives. They're not like the rest of us. So it doesn't matter how much Luke and Gracie want to be superheroes, they'll never get there. Now, most of us have accepted that reality. We're okay with the fact that we're never gonna be the next Thor. And really, who wants to wear a cape and carry a big old hammer around all the time? So we're okay with that. My fear, my concern is that we have allowed that same logic to infect our spiritual lives. You see, we come across a lot of heroes in this book, a lot of heroic individuals that changed the world and the course of history for the better. So we read about men like Abraham or Moses or Daniel or Paul, or we read about women like Ruth or Esther or Mary, and we look at the lives they live and the the impact that they had, and we just look up to them in awe. We're just amazed what incredible saints, what incredible heroes of the faith. We lift them up and assume we could never be like them. The church has spent an awful lot of time over the last 2,000 years venerating our heroes, venerating saints and martyrs because we assume we could never be like them. 
So the church, we, we venerate martyrs. That means you take some bone or fragment of a bone and you put it in a shrine and, and you venerate it. You worship there. You pray there because the saint, you assume, is, is better than you. So here is the, the tomb of, of St. James, the apostle. He's going to be martyred in Acts chapter 12. So it's coming soon. Legend has it that his bones were taken and placed in this crypt in the church of, or the cathedral of Santiago in Spain. And, and Christian pilgrims go and venerate James. They, they pray there. They worship there. Actually, just last year, over 200,000 Christians walked on foot the 100-kilometer path that leads from the valley up to this church. 100 kilometers on foot to go venerate St. James. Because we, we lift up these heroes, these martyrs, these saints in the history of the church. We put them on a pedestal. We look to them in awe because we assume we could never be like them. We look up to them because we assume they're a special kind of Christian that we could never be. So this morning, we're going to look at one of them. We're going to look at a man named Stephen, the first martyr in the history of the church, the first person to die because of his faith in Jesus. And my fear as we look at Stephen is that you're going to see such incredible character and such amazing courage that you're going to look up to Stephen and think, man, there is a person I could never be like. That You're going to put him up on a, a pedestal. He's untouchable to you. And so I want to begin this morning with my big idea. I want you to hear, this is a big idea. I want you to make sure you're paying attention here. I want you to understand as we look at Stephen, there is nothing superhuman about Stephen. There is absolutely nothing in this story that is superhuman about Stephen himself. He does not have powers you don't have. He is not some special class of Christian that you couldn't become. No, when you look at Stephen, actually, Stephen is just a totally regular guy, just an ordinary believer like the rest of us who allows the Holy Spirit, whom we all have, to do extraordinary things through him, just like the Spirit can do through you. I want to make sure that you heard that. Let me say that again. Stephen, the first great martyr of the church, is just a regular believer like us who allows the Holy Spirit, who we all have as followers of Jesus, to do extraordinary things through him, just like he can do through you. We really can be heroes. All of us can be heroes of the Christian faith. You don't have to be some special class of Christian or have some special powers. It's available to all of us. Every one of us can change this world for the better. Every one of us can have a, a, a place in shaping history just like Stephen did. We can be heroes just like him if we'll follow his example. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the example of Stephen so that we can learn how to be heroes like him. It's available to every one of us in this room. We can change history just like he did if we'll follow his example. So let's learn how to become a hero of the faith. We're going to look at Stephen. Let's meet him. Let's see what, what went into making Stephen a great hero in the course of history. Let's meet him in chapter 6. So look with me starting in verse 1. Now at this time,
time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve, that is the apostles, the elders, summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Okay, a little background. What's going on here? Well, there is a crisis of disunity in the early church. You see, there, the early church at this time, the church was just composed of Jews, but there were two different groups of Jews, the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews. They were divided over a controversy. Should we as Jews live like the rest of the world, like the Greek world? Hellenistic Jews said yes, Hebraic Jews said no. The Hebraic Jews were the majority in the church, so they tended to neglect the needs of the Hellenistic Jews, like their widows. So the widows who were Hellenistic widows were not getting the money that they needed to stay alive. The government did not assist widows back then, so the church had to. And so the elders, the apostles, wisely say, we need to appoint some some godly men to watch over the distribution of food. And so they appoint this man named Stephen. Now, what do we know about Stephen? Well, right at the beginning, you find out the most important thing about this man. When you meet him in verse 5, look again at verse 5. He was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Full of faith and the Holy Spirit. That is the prerequisite for becoming a hero in the economy of God. You've got to be a person who is full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Prereq. What's a prereq? Well, in school, prereqs are the classes you have to take before you get to take the classes you want to take. They're those classes that you got to get done at the beginning. And so if you want to be a hero in the Christian faith, first thing is you got to become a Christian. <laughs> you got to become a part of God's family. And the way you become a Christian is through faith and the Spirit. It's what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. And when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed in Christ, you were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. So this group of people, Paul is talking about the day of their conversion. When did they become Christians? Well, it was the day when, when they heard the word of truth, the gospel, that, that good news. That's what gospel means. The good news that God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, taking our punishment in our place, and then rose from the dead to conquer sin and Satan and death for us. And now he offers eternal life as a free gift. You just have to say, yes, God, I accept the free gift of eternal life Jesus has earned for me. That's the gospel. The moment that they believe that good news, the Holy Spirit came upon them, came into them. The Holy Spirit came to live inside of them forever and seal them as a part of God's family. So that's the moment that they became Christians. But what I want you to notice is that Luke, he's the author of the book of Acts, he doesn't just tell us that, that Stephen was a Christian. That's not enough. He's not talking about a guy who was just a Christian. He says he was full of, the, of faith in the Spirit. His whole life, every area of his life was full of faith and the power of the Holy Spirit. In, in other words, Stephen didn't just one day hear the gospel and say, I believe that, and then get back to ordinary life. Now, he 
pursued God. He kept growing in faith day after day. That's what sets apart heroic Christians from all other Christians. They never stop growing in faith. They keep learning to trust God more and more with their lives so that the Holy Spirit can own more and more of them. Okay, so at some point in time, I hope that you have trusted Jesus for eternal life. You've given your eternity to Jesus. That's excellent. That's great. That's how you became a Christian. But I hope you're not done yet. I hope you're learning to trust Jesus with the rest of your life. Yeah, you've given him your eternity, but have you given him your relationships? Your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your fiance, your spouse, have you turned that over to Jesus? Your kids, have you learned to trust Jesus with your kids? Your health, have you given that to Jesus? Your money, your finances, your career, your reputation, your possessions, have you given all of those to Jesus? That's what Stephen was doing day after day. He was giving more of his life to Jesus so that faith filled every part of him. Now, how do you grow in that kind of faith, turning more and more of your life over to Jesus? That's incredibly hard and it takes a really long time i wish i could click this button and put up like the three steps on the board that you need to do to grow in faith doesn't work that way the life of faith is incredibly hard and it takes an incredibly long time i am 39 years old been walking with the lord for 35 of those years and as i look at my life i am convinced that my journey of growing in faith has only begun i've got an incredibly long ways to go. I'll prove it to you. Um, Just take one area of my life, my money, my finances. I would like to tell you that I totally trust Jesus with my finances. I thought I did, and then this summer my air conditioner broke. Just broke, and now it's looking like it's going to cost us many thousands of dollars to replace it. And so I heard that. I see the quote of what it's going to take, and what do I feel? Anger. Anger builds up inside, and that is God saying, you haven't trusted me yet. Haven't trusted me yet. Why am I getting angry? Jesus owns my air conditioner. Jesus owns all my money in the bank. Jesus is sovereign. He knew that air conditioner was going to break this summer. He allowed it to happen. And so why am I getting angry when it's all belonging to Jesus? Because I don't trust him yet. I'm still holding on to my money, my plans, my way. And so God shows me, no, you're not there yet, Blake. No, I'm not. I got decades ahead. And so when I see these areas in my life where I've not yet fully trusted Jesus, what I do is I get on my knees and in humility I say to God, God, please do whatever it takes to grow me in faith. Key phrase, whatever it takes. That's submission. You're saying, Jesus, you own it all, take it all. Do whatever it takes in my life, through my life, to grow me in faith. That's painful. It's usually going to come through loss, through something not going well. You're going to grow to trust Jesus more and more. And so I invite you to pray that prayer. God, do whatever it takes to grow me in faith. God, I'm struggling to trust you with my health. I'm struggling to trust you with my career. I'm struggling to trust you with my significant other. I'm struggling to trust you with my kids. Man, that's a hard one for us parents. God, please do whatever it takes to grow my faith so that I will really trust you in this area. I invite you to begin to pray that every day. God, do whatever it takes to grow me in faith. If you will pray that prayer every day for the next 30 years, maybe you will start to grow in faith because that's what it takes. Daily humbling yourself before God, 
putting your life before him and giving him time. It takes a long time to grow in faith. That's the prerequisite for the, for the life of a, of a hero of the faith. You must be growing in faith so that the Spirit can do more and more through your life. The more you learn to trust Jesus, the more His Spirit can do in and through you. So first, you've got to make sure that you're growing in faith. That's the most important thing. As you grow in faith, then the Spirit will start to create within you incredible strength. And we're going to look at four strengths that, that we see in Stephen, that the Spirit grew in him. Again, it's not his strength. It's not about Stephen. He's just a regular guy like us. But four amazing things that the Spirit created in him and grew within him because he was growing in faith. So let's look at those four strengths that the Spirit grew in Stephen. The first is heroic obedience. You saw that in verse 3. Chapter 6, looking at verse 3, as the elders, as the apostles begin to choose men, they choose men of good reputation. Good reputation means that you live a life that when the rest of the world looks at you, when the community looks at you, they can't charge you of doing anything wrong. There's no immorality, there's no crime, there's no deception that they're aware of in your life. You've lived a godly life, a life that is so consistently obedient to God that even people who don't like you have to say, wow, that's a, that's a really good person. It's a really godly man, a really godly woman. That's the kind of life that Stephen lived, a life that was so consistently obedient, that was so above reproach that his enemies could not charge him with anything legitimate. So look with me real quick at, at verse 13. Look down at verse 13. So some enemies come forward. They don't believe in Jesus. They want to shoot Stephen down. They want to refute him. They want to charge him. They actually want to kill him. And so they're looking for something to charge him with. They can't find anything in his life. So verse 13, they put forward false witnesses. All they can do is lie. They got to trump up false charges against the guy because he has lived a life of such good reputation. He has been blameless in the community. So even his enemies have to admit, man, that is a really good guy. Let's go get some liars in here because that's our only hope to get him in trouble. That's the kind of life that God is calling us to live, a life that is above reproach. So I want you to think about your life real quick. I want you to ask yourself, if somebody went and talked to your family or your friends or your neighbors or your coworkers or your classmates or the other kids in the club that you're in or the sport that you're in and asked them about you, what would they say? Would they say, wow, that's a, a really godly man. It's a really good woman. I'm just amazed at them. Or would they say, wow, he's got a mouth. Wow, she's a gossip. Man, that's a selfish person. Such a backstabber. What, what would they say about you? If you want to be a hero of the faith, you have to live a life that is blameless. You have to have a good reputation. That's the only way you'll impact people for good. Remember when I was in junior high, I was in band, and uh, we went on trips a lot, and, and there's this one trip that was really far away, so we were in the car like all day and then all night on the way back, and I always got made fun of on those trips. I was always ridiculed by the other guys because I was small. I hadn't growth spurted at that point, and I was not popular, and I was a Christian, so I never fought back, and they knew that. And so they ridiculed me, and they ridiculed me all the way there and made fun of me when we got back in the car and we're coming home, and I just remember getting so angry. So fed up would be in the butt of every joke. And so you may not know this about me. I am your pastor, but I can be really sarcastic when I want to be. And so I decided I had had enough. 
And so I verbally raked a couple of those guys over the coals. I said some words and some things about them that I don't ever want my kids to hear, but it worked. Everyone was now laughing at them instead of laughing at me, and that felt so good. Vengeance always feels good in the moment. But then I went to bed, and I woke up the next morning, and I felt incredible regret. It's scary to see how fast we can tank a good reputation. Just give in to a little bit of sin, and it's all gone. Why would those guys listen to me if I talked about Jesus? I was the only Christian they knew, and I had just ridiculed them in public the night before. Our behavior in public either makes us the hero or the villain of the story God is writing. People are either attracted to Jesus or driven away from Jesus by the way we act in public. And so that night I got on my knees and I prayed, God, please forgive me. I'm so sorry. I brought shame to the name of your son. That's what I've done. I've shamed Jesus. That's what it's about. Not shaming Blake, shaming Jesus because he's who I represent. So God, please do whatever it takes in my life to redeem my reputation and to help me to be a man who lifts high the reputation of Christ. So as you look at your life, if there is some area that you need to work on, if your reputation is not spotless, if you are not blameless in the community because of things you've said, things you've done, I want to invite you to pray. Go to the Lord. He already knows what you did. Confess it. Acknowledge that it's wrong. And then begin to pray. Same prayer we just talked about. God, please do whatever it takes to redeem my reputation in the community and to help me to be a person who brings honor to the name of Christ rather than dishonor. That's how you get to be a hero in the story Jesus is writing. You live a life of heroic obedience. It's the first strength we see in Stephen. Second strength that we see in his life we'll find in verse 8 through 10. Look with me starting in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people, but some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Second strength that we see the spirit create in Stephen is heroic wisdom. To be wise means not only that you're smart. Smart doesn't equal wise. Wise means that you understand truth and know how to live it. You understand the truth and you know how to live it out. That's Stephen. He's incredibly wise. He's so wise, in fact, that that his enemies, these, these men who are trying to prove that Jesus is not the Son of God, they cannot stand up against Stephen. They just can't deal with his wisdom. He just, he just shows. No, nope, foolish, 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 foolish. Oh, incredibly wise man. But where did he get all that wisdom? I said earlier, there's not something supernatural about Stephen, not something superhuman about him. So how is he so wise? The secret is found in chapter seven. Look with me in chapter seven. Stephen's enemies are getting nowhere, so they haul him in front of the Sanhedrin. That's the religious court of that day. Same group of men who had crucified Jesus not long before. Chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest said, are these things so? And he, that is Stephen, stands up and he says, hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him moved to this country in which you are now living, but he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when 
when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. Let's pause there. Do you notice, maybe if your Bible's like mine, there's a lot of words that are all caps, right? All caps are italicized different ways that different Bibles do it. What that's telling you is that Stephen is quoting word for word from the Old Testament. Now, I want you to picture the scene. Stephen doesn't have a Bible. Stephen doesn't have notes. He doesn't have your phone where you can, like, look up the Bible. No. Stephen has no time to prepare. He is dragged, literally physically dragged in front of the Sanhedrin, and they say, speak, and he stands up and does. And he's actually, in the rest of this chapter, he's going to walk these men through 2,000 years of history, all the history of the Israelite people, to prove that he's not the blasphemer. He's not the one who has rejected God. They are. He shows them the error of their ways by quoting scripture after scripture. Fifteen times he's going to quote the Old Testament from memory. Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, and Amos. Who here knows Amos by heart? (laughs) Stephen did. He knew it. He, he had saturated his mind with the Bible. There's not something amazing about this guy in and of himself. It's just he chose to spend so much time in this book that when the moment of testing came, he could recall it all by memory. This book is what made him wise. If you want to be a wise person, if you want to have heroic wisdom in your interactions with the people of this world, you've got to spend your time in this book. So I'm going to ask you a few questions that have been convicting me this week so that now you can have them. They can convict you. Do you tend to spend more time in the course of the day in this book or on Facebook or Instagram? Do you have more football statistics memorized or verses of the Bible memorized? Do you spend more time reading, studying, and memorizing this book or listening to podcast preachers talk about what they've found in this book? There is no shortcut to wisdom. If you want to become a hero of the faith, a a heroic person who changes the course of history, you must spend countless hours reading, studying, and memorizing this book. There is no other way. No shortcuts. So, Stephen, heroic wisdom, absolutely phenomenal wisdom this man had. Third trait that we see the Spirit create in Stephen, heroic grace. Saw that in verse 8, it says, in Stephen, full of grace and power. Grace and power is interesting. When we think about our superheroes, so the, the superheroes of American pop culture, we do think power. They got lots of power. We don't tend to think grace. Grace or being gracious means that you give someone good when they deserved harm. Gracious means you're forgiving. You bless those who hurt you. We don't imagine our superheroes doing that. Think about it. Batman catches the Joker in the middle of a criminal act, wraps him up in a hug, says, I love you, man. I forgive you. Let me buy you lunch and we'll talk about how to keep you out of trouble. Doesn't happen. Now, our heroes in our culture are not gracious, but biblical heroes are. The secret to being a hero of the Bible is that you are an incredibly gracious person. Look at Stephen's speech. Look back at chapter 7, verse 2. How does Stephen start? And he said, hear me, brethren and fathers. Brethren and fathers, those are terms of respect. Those are ways that you speak kindly to people. Who's he talking to? 
The guys who were lying about him, the guys who had crucified his savior a few months before that, guys who are about to kill him, he calls them brothers, fathers. He speaks with incredible kindness to his enemies. That continues all the way through the speech. Come to the end of the chapter, end of chapter 7. Look with me, chapter 7, verse 58. They're going to kill Stephen. You know where this story is headed. They're going to kill him because of his allegiance to Jesus. Look what happens, verse 58. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They were, went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. So this is Stephen's death. He dies. It doesn't happen instantly, if you know how this happened. They dragged him out, threw him down a pit, and then they began to throw stones at him. So, so every hit, he's just a barrage, stone after stone. It's bruising him, breaking bones, cutting his skin. This is not a quick death, and it's not a painless death. It's incredibly painful. So as the stones are falling down on him, boom, 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 his last words are, looking up, Father, forgive them. Please don't hold this against them. Same words of Jesus on the cross. As they crucified him, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Forgive these men who are torturing me. Forgive these men who are killing me. That's grace. I said earlier that real power is found in grace. Let me prove that to you. Do you notice in verse 58 who is standing over the coats? Who's watching the clothes of the Sanhedrin as they murder Stephen? Saul. You know him by a different name. Paul. In two chapters, we'll look at it uh, in a couple weeks, Paul is going to be converted. He's going to meet Jesus on the way to Damascus, and Jesus is going to save him. And I like to think that the reason that Jesus chose to save Paul is because of Stephen's prayer. Because Stephen is looking at Paul. Father, do not hold his sin against him. Stephen prays for his enemy. He shows grace to the man who is killing him. And two chapters later, God says, okay, Stephen, boom. Saves Paul, and you know what happens with Paul. Becomes great apostle and greatest missionary in the history of the church. So because of showing grace, Stephen ends up turning Paul from killer into faithful apostle and missionary who changes the course of the church and history for eternity. And so let's think about what is real power in this world. Well, according to our culture, power is the ability of the hero to crush the bad guy, right? The hero can crush the villain. That's, that's true power. No, it's not. That's easy to just crush the bad guy. What's true power? True power is grace. True power is transforming the villain into the next hero in the story. That's the kind of power that God wants to unleash in your life. Not the power to crush an enemy. That's easy. But the power to transform an enemy into a friend. A sinner into a saint. A villain into the next hero in God's story. That's real power. That's what God can accomplish through your life if you will forgive your enemies. If you will bless those who hurt you. If you will return kindness for harm. If you'll be a gracious person like Stephen was, God will do something amazing through you. He'll transform villains into heroes. It's the third strength that we see the Spirit grow in Stephen. He transforms him into a man of heroic grace. Fourth and finally, 
Spirit grows in Stephen heroic courage. And when you think of a courageous person, who comes to mind? For me, I'll be honest, it's this guy, Chuck Norris, everyone's favorite internet action star. I love all the memes that have been created, pictures with words on them about Chuck Norris, uh, one of my favorites that I looked at this week. Uh, Chuck Norris, his tears cure cancer too bad he has never cried. Love this guy. Internet Chuck Norris is invincible. He always wins. When, when Internet Chuck Norris stands against evil, Chuck knows he's going to win. The bad guy knows Chuck's going to win. Everyone knows Chuck's going to win. And so, if you think about it for a moment, you may realize, actually, there is no courage in this. It doesn't take courage to stand up to evil when you know you're going to win. That's not courage. Courage requires vulnerability. Courage is a person standing up to evil when they know they could get hurt. That's the courage of Stephen. Again, who is he in front of when he delivers this speech? The Sanhedrin. The same group of people who had just crucified Jesus. Stephen knows his life is on the line. He knows what they could do to him. And yet in incredible courage, he speaks truth to them. So remember, he's going to walk them through 2,000 years of Israelite history to show that they're the ones rejecting God. And look at how he lands this speech. Great ending to the speech. Look at the end, verse 51. Here's the bombshell he ends on. Verse 51. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, that is Jesus, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Man, he's not pulling punches. Those are dangerous words to say in front of a court that can kill you. Stephen knows that. He doesn't pull his punches. He speaks truth boldly, knowing it could cost him his life, which it does. Look at the next verse. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. Being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, covered their ears, rushed at him with one impulse and then they drive him out of town and kill him. So Stephen became the first martyr in the history of the church, certainly not the last. This scene is being repeated all the time over the course of the world. It's happening even today. It's not been long enough for us to forget this scene back in February when ISIS marched 21 Egyptian Christians to the beach and killed them all. Happens even in our own country. If news reports are correct, in Oregon, it was about ultimately people choosing to follow Jesus. People are giving up their lives for Jesus all the time. But let's talk about us. Chances are good that for most of us, at least for the foreseeable future, we're not going to be asked to give up our lives for Jesus. That may happen at some point, but probably not soon. But even though it's not going to cost you your life, it is going to cost you something. To be courageous, to take a stand for Jesus, you are going to lose something. For most of us in this room, it's going to be our reputations. So here we are living in an academic community. This is a college town. Many of you are, are professors, teachers, staff, students at a top-tier university just down the road. Or you are researchers, you are lawyers, you are doctors, you are teachers, you are men and women who are respected for your intellect. You have a good reputation in this community because of your mind. 
But I want you to put two and two together. You hold to a faith that is not well regarded in the academic world. You see, you believe in ridiculous things like miracles and resurrection and trinity and sin and abstinence before marriage. Those are laughable things. You get up in the university and you proclaim those things and you can get laughed out of town. And so the question for us is, when the moment comes when we must stand for Jesus, are we willing to sacrifice our reputations, our respect, our esteem in this community to be faithful to Jesus? Or I'll put it this way, are you willing to be thought a fool for Jesus Christ? That's really hard for me. I take pride in my intellect. That's kind of my thing. I've always taken pride in that. I would really rather lose my right arm than be thought a fool by someone else. So am I willing to give that up? Am I willing to lay my reputation, my intellect, my mind on the altar of God and be faithful to Jesus? Even when people are going to think that I'm gullible, naive, foolish, stupid, am I willing to be thought a fool for Jesus Christ? Are you? May not cost us our lives, but it will cost us our reputation. And so as the men go back to prepare communion, let's let's find out how, how to find strength in that moment, that day that's going to come when, like Stephen, we're going to be tested We're going to have to take a stand for Jesus that will cost us dearly. How do you be a hero like Stephen? How do you find strength to do the right thing, to stand up for Jesus when it costs you? Well, you remember what God can accomplish through a regular, old, ordinary man or woman like any of us. I want you to see what came as a result of Stephen's death. Look with me, chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Skip down to verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Before this moment, up through chapter 7, the church huddled in Jerusalem. The thousands of Christians who never left the city. The church turned in on itself. They all hung out together. But all of that changed with Stephen's death. Because persecution arose, now the Christians are all kicked out of Jerusalem. They're scattered. But because Stephen was so courageous, they're inspired to follow his example. He inspired thousands of Christians to stand up and take Jesus all throughout the world. And so they begin to proclaim Jesus throughout Samaria, throughout Judea. Every city soon has witnesses of Jesus because of Stephen's faithfulness. And so when I face those moments when I know this could cost me, this is going to be hard to be courageous for Jesus. What I remember is that if I'm faithful to Jesus, God can change history through me. That's what he did through Stephen. Stephen's not a special guy. He's just like any one of us. But he was willing to be courageous for Jesus when it counted. And so God said, I'm gonna take your courage and I'm gonna use it to change the world for the better and to change history for eternity. And God will do it through you. If you will choose to stand up like Stephen did 
and the power of the Spirit if you will live a life of faith, trusting more and more of your life to God, if you will live a life of obedience, following Him in every way, if you will live a life of wisdom, spending time in this book, if you will live a life of grace, showing kindness to your enemies, and when the moment comes, you can be courageous. You can stand for Jesus even when you know it's gonna make a fool of you. You can stand courageous because you know God can take you and make you the next hero in the story he is writing. Saints and martyrs aren't a special class of Christian. They're just like any one of us. We can be just like them if we will be courageous as witnesses for Jesus. I have a way for you to start being courageous. You were given a card when you came in this morning. You can take out that card real quick. Two-sided card. We've been talking all the way through this series of Acts about our three, our three people. So three people God has placed in your life who don't yet know Jesus. I want you to write their names down on that card, on the side that says my three people and one place. So you're gonna write three people by name who don't yet know Jesus. If you don't know three people, then you need to go meet more people, particularly non-Christian people. Okay, so write down by name three people and then one place, one country or people group where you really wanna see Jesus exalted, maybe a nation where Jesus isn't currently being praised. I want you to write those down. Your three people by name, your one place. On the back side, you can write a friend's three people in one place. So maybe your spouses or your roommates. That way we can be praying for each other. So after today, you're gonna have six people in two places on your card and I want you to put your card in your Bible or put it up on your refrigerator or your mirror at home and I want you to begin to pray every day for your three people and your one place. I I want you to pray that God would do whatever it takes in your life to grow you in courage so that you can be his witness to those three people and to that one place. If we will begin to pray that every day, I believe that God can raise up every single person in this room, myself included, to be the next Stephen in his story. We can be heroes just like that man. If we will faithfully pray for the lost and pray that God will give us courage to share his news with them. This morning we're going to celebrate communion, which is fitting because we've been talking about taking a stand for Jesus, but the only reason we take a stand for Jesus is because he's already taken a stand for us. We stand up because Jesus stood up when we were his enemies. He stood up and took all of our sin, all of our evil, all of the punishment we deserved. He stood up and took it on his back, died in our place, rose from the dead so that we could be set free. That's why we want to tell people about Jesus. So this morning, we're gonna celebrate what Jesus has done for us, and we're gonna take this communion. You men can come forward now. We're gonna take this communion to dedicate ourselves to Jesus. So I wanna ask you, as the elements are passing, I want you to take this time, and I want you to begin this prayer that we've been talking about this morning. I want you to pray, and I want you to mean it when you say it. God, please do whatever it takes in my life beginning today to help me to become a faithful witness for Jesus Christ, to help me become like Stephen. I give you all of my life, Jesus. Take it all. Do whatever it takes to make me a hero of the faith. First Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. 
when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, this morning we remember you. We remember that you who are God, or the second member of the Trinity, who have all power and glory, who have heaven at your feet, you chose to come to this planet to be one of us, to take on our flesh, our limitations, our weaknesses. You chose to take on our sin and the punishment that we deserved and to die in our place. You took our death for us. We remember, Lord Jesus, that you died and rose from the dead so that we could be free. Help us never to forget that. You stood for us. You stood in our place. And so, Jesus, we pray that when it comes time for us to take a stand for you, When it's time for us to be like Stephen, we pray that you would give us courage. We pray that through your spirit, you would help us to speak words of truth and grace and wisdom. Help us to obey. Help us to walk with you in that moment of fear. I pray that we would be courageous like Stephen. I pray that we would glorify you. I pray that we would live lives that honor you and exalt you in this community. Lord, we pray. Please do whatever it takes to make each one of us a hero of the faith like Stephen. Take our lives as a sacrifice. Do whatever you must so that we can become more like him. We thank you for Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Now if you'll stand, let's join together in worship.